Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Good morning, church. Today's reading will be taken from the book of John, chapter 17, verses 20 to 23. The book of John, chapter 17, verses 20 to 23. At the end of the reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will respond by saying, thanks be to God. Verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Faye. And good morning to everyone. Uh, once again, please let me apologize for the te technical hitches that we have, where well, we had uh, earlier, which are set up with time. And also the gen, we're just gonna have to live with the gen kind of going back, going down and up. So please bear with us um, as we go there. But we are doing a series for those who come, come in for the first time or who have not come in a long time. We're doing a series through the book of John. I think this is our 14th uh, message on it. We're trying to run through the whole book of John because we want to know who Jesus is. Now, we all know who Jesus is, Jesus, but we don't always, you know, you get too familiar with a particular person and you just need to spend time studying the person to be sure that you're not going to miss. And the second thing is really, because Jesus is such a remarkable human being, we are obliged, if we are Christians, to keep looking at the person of Jesus. We never graduate from looking at the person of Jesus. So that's why we've been doing this series, and we've been finding out a lot about Jesus, because that's why John said he wrote this book, so that we can know the identity of Jesus. But in doing so, as we are seeing benefits to ourselves. He said, if you know who Jesus is and believe in him, then you will have eternal life. So as we are discovering the person of Jesus, we are discovering more about ourselves. And so today we are looking, as Faith has just read for us, uh, the 17th chapter. We're just taking a few verses today. We're taking a few verses today, but there's a lot packed into that. Now let me start with this. There are many people that will look at Christians, and if you're not a Christian here, but even if you're a Christian, we have to confess that one of the things that actually... Um, it's not the best is that we see a lot of Christian discord. 
That is, it's not enough that you say that I'm a Christian, but are you Roman Catholic? Are you a Coptic? Are you Anglican? Are you Baptist? Are you Presbyterian? Are you Methodist? Are you Pentecostal, New Generation or Classical? Are you Lutheran? Are you Brethren? Maybe you're just non-denominational, you know, you just say, I'm just a Christian. But the truth is that there is a sense of division within Christianity. Now, before you think, well, it's the Christians that have a monopoly on this, just think of Muslims. They're not, you know, um, exempt from this. You have the Sunnis, you have the Shiites, you have the Wahhabi, Alawites, Salafists, Ahmadiyya, Sufi, Nasfat, or Jews, Reformed Jews, Jews, Orthodox Jews, Ultra-Orthodox Jews, and even the spiritist Jews, you know, Kabbalah. I think Madonna got into Kabbalah one time, whatever that is. I said, well, no, actually, that's religious people. That's why I don't, I'm, I'm not religious, you know. Maybe I am, I don't know what I believe in. I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. Well, I'll say, which kind of atheist? Is he a materialist atheist? Are you Buddhist atheist, Confucianist, Taoist, Shintoist? Look, the truth is that whatever system of thought that you adopt, because human beings are the nature that we are, there is always going to be some division. Now, that is not an apologetic for the Christian disunity that we have. In fact, it is one of the things that will repel a lot of non-Christians. You'll probably be saying, why should I join you when you guys seem to hate each other a lot? And really, honestly, you know, you can see Christians maybe hating certain unbelievers, but there is no hatred like when a Christian hates another Christian because of the things that divide us. Now, having said that, I wish we could just wish it away. We can't wish away the division. Unity is no easy thing. Let me give you my, I mean, personally, speaking from my own experience and my church uh, experience, I was born and spent my early years in the African Anglican church. Then later, I spent a lot of time growing up in a Pentecostal, non-structured, prophetic, end-time house movement. <laughs> Bim. And doing this, while I was doing this, I was actively engaged in many new generation Pentecostal churches. When I went abroad, I attended a conservative evangelical church for a while, then moved to a large, highly charismatic restorationist church. I also doubled into some more conservative house churches while visiting Hillsong-like Pentecostal churches to add a few. And after that, you could join um, an artistic, creative startup shop in Belfast. I ended up finding, finally, um, settling in a less liturgical Anglican evangelical church for the remainder of my time in the UK, but I also had the privilege of preaching at a charismatic Anglican one too. I've also spent time worshiping at no less than 15 churches in the US, some of which I have preached at, and none of which are the same. When we returned back to Nigeria, um, we visited small and large conservative Baptist churches, large and not so new, new generation Pentecostal churches too. In other words, I've been around a bit. And I can tell you something, to get all these churches to agree together on anything is no small, is no mean feat. Unity is hard. And sometimes, you know, maybe someone starting up in Christianity is just saying, you know, echoing some of the words of unity, you know, some of the songs that we like of unity, you know. Why, why can't we just have one love and one heart? You know, if we get together, we'll feel all right. You know, but the truth is, if it was that simple, somebody would have done it before. Or the problem is, we just don't allow love. If we just allow one love to set us free, you know, um, no, it's, yeah, 
one love can set us free if we just let it be. Who knows that one? One love keep us together. Yeah, all of you that know it, your, your age has just been, you know, it's just been revealed. Unity is hard. But even though it's hard, it is still something that is desirable. And in the passage that we do see here, we see that Jesus himself actually desires unity for his people. Look at verse 21. Uh, verse 21, it says, my prayer is not for them alone. So he's praying but at the same time, he's praying for their unity, 22, that they may be one, 23, so that they may be brought to complete unity. So Jesus prays for that. Now, this passage, we only took a part of what has been called, this is the real, you know, we talk about the Lord's Prayer. Now, yes, the Lord's Prayer is really the Lord teaching us to pray, and we are the ones that pray the Lord's Prayer. But this is the real Lord's Prayer, because he prayed in the whole of John 17. Now, there are three divisions that we've just looked at the upper room discourse from 13 to 16. We said in the book of John, almost half of the book of John is the last week of Jesus' life. And from chapters 13 to 16, he's speaking with his disciples, giving them final instructions. You know, not everybody has the privilege to know when they are going to die. But for those who probably have a terminal illness, they normally would put their house in order, give instructions on certain things, and probably exhort their children on the things that matter to them the most. Now, Jesus knew that, and in this particular chapter, he prays for three things. He first prays for himself in 1 to 5, and then he prays for the disciples that were there with him from uh, verses 6 to 19, and then finally from 20 to the end, to 26, he prays for the disciples that will come after the disciples that are there now. Notice he says that I'm Praying for these also, but the ones that will come after the people uh, that will believe through their message. And so if Jesus thought unity was important and were to pray for unity, I think we'll find many things in this passage that will help us to understand uh, how unity can be achieved among the people of God. So look at it under three headings. The model for unity, we're looking at being united, as you can see. The model for unity... First uh, point. Second is uh, the purpose for unity. And then the third is the glory for unity. Model for unity, the purpose of unity, and the glory for unity. Let's go to uh, the first point. We'll spend most of my time. Now, again, I said unity is quite important. It's not just in uh, um, Christian folk. Actually, a lot of the world around us knows that it's important to be united. Now, but I can say that in two broad terms, there are two categories of, or two models of how we can achieve unity that we see. The one model is our model, you can call it the horizontal model, and then the second is Jesus' model, which you can call the vertical model. So let's think of the first one. Now, as I said, unity and diversity is something that we all look for, a human longing, something that we search for for a long time. Now, for you to be united, quite often you have to be united around a thing. Now, some people done it through language. Think of the Alexander the Great's uh, Hellenization. If I can get everyone in the area to speak the same language, probably they'll be more united. This is why at the time you get to the New Testament, it's written in Greek. Some people, unfortunately, through skin color. Some people through geographic location, art, love, and my favorite is, can we just unite if we have a common enemy, right? The friend of my, fr uh, the, friend, uh, the enemy of my enemy is my, 
All right. You know that's an unbelieving kind of statement for all of you that have just confirmed that. But anyway, but, but it's not easy. So take the UN, for instance. The UN, which the UN, in, I'm a big fan of the UN. It's achieved a lot, a lot. Look, if we didn't have the UN, we'll have more wars than we currently have now. So the UN has achieved a lot. But how does the UN unite? It's not really stable because the UN, the UN is trying to unite for world peace without a common shared understanding of human rights or able to address the deep-seated issues between the member states that are there. I mean, just think about it. It's the same UN that has Russia and the United States. In fact, uh, previously in the early 80s, uh, uh, some nations in the UN were actually warring against each other. Think of Argentina and Britain under, under Thatcher when they were warring over then you have the Security Council, which not everybody can be a part of. I think it's the last time I checked it was seven. But the only basis for you to enter into the Security Council for a thing that is trying to unite over peace is your military, your military might. You know? And as one singer said, that one, they have one veto vote is equal to 92 or more. In fact, when the musician was summing up what the United Nations is all about, he said, and I quote, waiting united for inside United Nations. I'm sure nobody will know who that is. Wonderful holy crowd. There's no stable, they have no stable basis for unity. No shared understanding on human value, no shared understanding of human rights, despite the declaration of human rights. In the church, historically, splits, uh, the splits that have occurred in the church there has been, especially in the 50s, in the 50s to 60s, uh, 1950s and 1960s, there were attempts to organizationally bring all of the churches under one umbrella. It was called the World Council of Churches. And the move was something we called ecumenism. Now, one crass way of describing ecumenism, I like to think about it as ecclesiological kumbaya. What I mean by that is, let us all just sing together kumbaya, kumbaya, under the whole church and everything is going to be fine. Now, the problem with that kind of unity is that it just doesn't take, and truth is always sacrificed on the altar. Truth is seen of relative importance. You guys don't believe in whether Jesus Christ actually physically rose from dead or not, but it doesn't matter because we can sing Baya. And obviously, that has been a disaster because the World Council of Churches, to a large extent, doesn't con contain any sense of believing, what you call believing Christians, people who truly hold the Bible. And even on the streets of Lagos, sometimes to maintain peace, we say stuff like, we are all Christians, it doesn't matter what you believe. What? You see, the problem with horizontal unity is that it's ultimately futile because it's flawed people work, working for unity on different goals, different interests. And that is why Jesus gives us a different kind of unity for the church, vertical unity. That's Jesus' own model. What does he mean? What do I mean by vertical unity? That's what he prays for. We can see it again in verse 21, uh, at the beginning of 21, that all of them may be one. Verse 22 again, that they may be one. So what does this vertical unity look like? Now, horizontal unity basically says this. We are starting from a place of division, and then we are working towards unity. So we're working towards unity from the place of division. Whereas, with vertical unity, we are working 
from unity towards unity. We're working for or for unity from unity. We're working from unity towards unity, and I'll explain that. Now, it is based, the unity of the church that Jesus Christ is prescribing is based on the indwelling father and son unity. Look at it there again in verse 21. That all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. It gives us a model. You see it again in verse, um, verse uh, 22, towards the end of 22. That they may be one as we are one. So it's a model. He's using the, the oneness of the father and the son. And later we'll see it's not just a model, it's also a source. Look at verse 21 again. Towards the end, may they also be in us. Or verse 23, I, I in them and you in me. So it's a model and it's a source. Now, let's think about that father-son unity. When Jesus is saying, Father, you and I are one, what did he mean? That the Father and he are one. I'm not talking about Jesus maybe as the eternal Son of God, uh, uh, God the Son and God the Father. But Jesus in his incarnate, he's now come to earth. Now, some of it is, we can see it in this same book, John 5, 17. My Father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Or, verse 19, very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. And 14 verse 10 says, Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me that is doing the work. In other words, Jesus' unity with the Father, based on, uh, for his work here on earth, was based, it was Jesus depending on the Father and being obedient to the Father. Jesus is united to the Father. He depends on the Father. And as a result of that, he obeys the Father. In other words, Jesus' indwelling unity with the Father preceded his expression of the Father's work. Jesus is united with the Father, and then Jesus expresses that unity by doing the same work that the Father does. Do we understand that? In a similar way, believers being in the Father and Christ, as we see here, he says that let them be in us as well. So believers being in the Father and in Christ, and vice versa, through the Holy Spirit, as we saw uh, two, week, uh, two weeks ago, are already united in God. I'll say that again. If you're a true believer, you have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is what connects you to Jesus. Jesus said that the true believers are connected to him as the vine. They, he is the vine, and they are the branches. What does that mean? If Tomiwa is connected to Jesus and Bem is connected to Jesus, Tomiwa and Bem are connected. You see, many times with horizontal unity, we want to see how can Bem and Tomiwa be connected? How can they be united? We want to get them to agree. Jesus is saying, no, it's a different thing. Tomiwa gets connected to the vine. Bem gets connected to the vine. And therefore, Tomiwa and Bem are united through the vine. Not only that, but they are united through the message. How do they get connected to the vine? Through the message. Look at verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray for all those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. So 
through the apostolic message, the message about Jesus Christ that he gave to the apostles, if you believe in that, then you'll be connected to Jesus and therefore connected to Jesus' people. In other words, we are not working for unity. It already exists. It's a gospel unity. In Paul, for instance, in uh, Ephesians 4, the famous unity passage, Ephesians 4, 4 to 6, when he speaks about one gospel, he's talking about unity in one body because there's one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. In other words, what divides us as true Christians is so much smaller than what unites us. There are these seven ones, and he's saying, no, if you have one faith, you are connected to the person that also believes in that one faith. If you are looking forward to one hope, you are connected to somebody else who is looking forward to that one hope. We often think, as unit, uh, we often think of unity as something that we should try to achieve, whereas it's something that God, through Christ, has already achieved in us. Why is this important? Because this is important in how we, therefore, posture ourselves before we work for unity. Now, remember, Jesus is connected to the Father already, and then he works out his unity with the Father by obeying. In a similar way now, since Tomiwa and Bema are already connected and are united, they are not working together to achieve their unity. They are now working out their unity. There is a realized gospel unity, but now the practical unity is trying. We are now trying to express the unity that we already have. Paul, again, before he, before he uh, did that whole Ephesians 4, 4 to 6, and he called all this one, this one, that one, that, what was he doing? He was exhorting the believers to work together for unity. He said, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit already was there. Now he's saying, make the effort to work it out, to keep it. Why? Because there's one this, one that, one this, one that, one that. Now, I say that because the practical unity, take, for instance, we in the same church, in City Church here, we are not working together again to achieve unity. We're working out our unity, our gospel unity. And also, and this is where sometimes the big challenge is, if there are other Christians who are members of other churches, once again, if they're true believers, you are already united to them, and therefore, you should work out that unity. Now, I'm not being naive on this. And Jesus, well, I'm just preaching Jesus' word. If you like, call Jesus naive. But it's not that. You separate this realized unity from organizational unity. Now, most of the time when we think of unity, we're thinking organizationally. Now, organizational unity cannot look the same in every case. Nonetheless, it's something we must strive for. What I mean by that? We don't all believe everything. For instance, some doctrines, right, maybe we have different views on baptism. It may mean that we won't be part of the same church, but it doesn't mean that we can't work to respect each other. So the organizational unity is going to look different. In some cases, it's plain cordial respect for the other person. In other cases, it is love, it's engaging in loving, loving debate. Not after you finish debating and you think, okay, this one is a Calvinist, this one is an Armenian, you finish debating, you are so pumped up and you say, I don't even know whether he's a Christian. No, we, we have loving debates. 
Other times, it's that we may not be in the same church, but we, go, we, we work at worshiping together, maybe at the same conference. Other times, it may be churches working together in a network or a denomination. Other times, it may be through giving to somebody that is not in your church. Maybe there's a missionary somewhere. Maybe you are Baptist and it's a Presbyterian ministry, but it's a Presbyterian missionary. But the only Presbyterian missionaries that are going to that part of the world, give to them. You can express the unity that way. And for others, it is attending the same church. Gospel unity does not assume agreement on all things. It just doesn't. That would be naive. But it enforces a real unity in the gospel that forces us to think creatively about how we can express this unity. If I can just take an aside, for instance, in, in City Church, we are members of um, about three networks. Well, the main family network that we are members of is a, is a network of churches called Acts 29. Now, there are guys in Acts 29, uh, pastors in Acts 29, that I don't share, we don't share the same view on the gifts of the Spirit. But we are not, our unity, we found a way of having an organizational unity for the purpose of gospel mission and gospel church planting. On the issue of whether the, the gifts work, you know, I'm not in their church. And they're not in my church, so we don't have to argue about that. We're expressing a unity that we already have in Christ through the gospel. But let me say this on this, finally on this point. This is why they, we cannot have any unity without the message. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message. That is, if you take the message I'm talking about the gospel, if you reject it, if you revise it, or you relegate it, by relegating I mean other things are more important to you in the church. You know, how is God going to bless me? Or how are we going to build this new building? If those are the things that are more important to you, if you relegate the gospel, we wouldn't be talking about the unity that Jesus is talking about. The gospel has specific content, and we have to biblically agree on what that is as well as having unity about the doctrines that protect the integrity of the gospel. You can't just say, well, it's the gospel. There are some doctrines that protect the integrity of the gospel. You lose those doctrines, you lose the gospel. Now, I'm not trying to tell you 15, but there are some that are important. For instance, if you say you don't believe in the Trinity, sorry, you have no gospel. You don't believe in the deity of Christ, you have no gospel. The infallibility and the inerrancy of, of the Bible, you don't believe in that, the gospel is in danger. The reality of that there is truly sin that is rebellion against God and then uh, expresses our brokenness. If we don't believe that, why do we have a gospel? If we don't believe in the existence of hell, then you still do not have a gospel. If you lose these primary doctrines, you lose the gospel. And if you lose the gospel, then Christian unity is nothing but a farce. This is why we confess creeds, historic creeds, weekly to remind us of the things that unite us with Christians that have gone before and Christians that are all around now. And the Reformation that rebelled against the Catholic Church at the time, with, who didn't give any credence, real credence to the Bible, to the to weigh the Bible um, as, as the final authority of all matters of faith, the, the, the Reformation happened to protect these things, to protect the gospel and to protect the centrality of the word of God. Now you would say, all right, I see all of that. But why is this assumption that unity is a good thing? I mean, at the end of the day, what purpose does unity serve? 
I'm glad you asked. Second point, the purpose of unity. The purpose of unity. Now, let me take your mind back to um, July 2004. After becoming Chelsea's new manager, Jose Mourinho famously said in his first press conference that he is the special one. Now, he actually said he's a special one, but that doesn't make it sound very, very nice. So we call him the special one. He's the special one. Now, he thought, everyone thought this guy is absolutely arrogant. And he said, please, don't call me arrogant. I'm not arrogant. I'm just, I'm just a special one. I'm not like every other manager. Now, two years ago, he said that the next two seasons, he went on to win some cups and also the Premier League, two seasons in a row. Not only did they amass a staggering number of points, they also, they also showed a collective sense of unity. At that point, these guys were like brothers. And it wasn't just the players that were so united. There was something united about the whole club. The players, the owner, all the backroom staff, all of them were very united. Not only did they, not, did they win all of, the, of these um, uh, trophies, they showed that the club was fully united. Now, this lay credence to give credence to the fact of uh, Mourinho's claim that he was the special one. Why? Because through his leadership and man management, he was able to keep the team united in achieving their mission. Because of his leadership and man management, he was able to keep the team united in achieving their mission. So we see that unity was necessary for achieving an external goal and bearing witness to the one who brought this unity. You see, Christian unity is extremely important because it validates Jesus as God sent one in accomplishing his mission. Look at verse 21 towards the end. May they, may they also be in us so that, or I can go back and say, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Look down in verse 23. I in them and you in me so that they may brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me. He wants the world to know and to believe that God had truly sent him. In other words, when we are divided, when we are divided as Christians, you know what we're doing? We're telling a lie to the world about Jesus. As I said before, too often many, many non-Christians reject Christianity on account, not of Jesus Christ, but on account of Christians. Mahatma Gandhi famously said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. It wasn't totally wrong. In other words, unnecessary Christian division lies about, it lies about Christ, a Christ person, that is that he's fully united with the Father, but also about the unity he came to accomplish. People, look, listen. For all the disagreements that you have with other Christians, if they are truly Christians and believe the gospel, people will not find Christ appealing when they see us fighting with each other and slandering one another. The truth that he is God's special chosen and sent one will neither be known nor believed. There's a second thing it does. 
Christian division makes accomplishing Jesus' mission near it impossible. What do I mean by that? Now, what was Jesus' mission? Jesus' mission was to continue. It was to come and save people, but it was to continue through his apostles, right? And, extend, and by extension, the church that will come after the apostles, as we see in verse 20. This mission was to worldly people. Look at verse 23. Then the world will know that you have sent me, the world, worldly people, and that he has loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus came to worldly people to let them know that the same way the Father loves him, who is absolutely, perfectly lovely, is the same way he loves these worldly people. That's a staggering statement. For for the father to love the son, it makes perfect sense. The son is lovely. My beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, the one who knew no sin. But he came on the ultimate rescue mission to let worldly people know that in the same way the father has loved him, he also loved them. But this mission will be frustrated if you have a divided church that is going after that mission. Now, just think about the football. I don't know why I'm giving football analogies. I, I, Arsenal didn't win. They have not won recently. Well, anyway, let's, let's come back. But, okay, let's take Arsenal. How many people want to sign for Arsenal now, right? No footballer would want to sign for a club that is internally disintegrating because you know what? They know one thing. We will not win anything with this club. We just wouldn't. I'm not prophesying against Arsenal. Please pray for Arsenal. They need it. Look, once a church, here we say um, we want to be a community of worshipers. But if as a church you focus only on community for community's own sake, you know what starts to happen? We start immediately noticing our own imperfections. If all I ever do is trying to build community with uh, uh, Latunde, with uh, Olumide, eventually Latin and Olumide, because I'm spending too much time with them, and we just want to talk about what's going on in my life, they eventually start seeing my imperfections. They start seeing the places where I have sin. And before you know it, we start fighting. In fact, smaller churches are more inclined to this kind of thing. I've seen, look, I've seen more splits in smaller churches than you do in larger churches. You know, every small thing is a problem. It's a problem. Why did they buy Panasonic fan and then buy Ox fan? Right? It was the wife that actually bought it. This church, I'm sure the pastor and the wife, they're doing something. Right? Ah, did you hear what happened to the pastor? We just start. Why? Because we're not looking outside. We have nothing else to do. But if we're a community of worshipers on mission, there is nothing that unites like mission. Just think of the Second World War. What could bring Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt together? Yeah? The leader of the Soviet Empire the leader of Britain, and the leader of America. What could bring them together for three or four meetings? I'll tell you what could bring them together. They had a mission against a common enemy. His name was Hitler. And that was a negative thing. But here, we're talking about a positive thing. If nothing can unite the church more like mission, individually and collectively, churches must unite around the mission of the church in proclaiming the gospel. Why? Because when we unite to achieve one mission, it both depicts our unity, but it also preserves our unity. When we have things that we are trying to achieve, particularly the mission of God, trying to reach the city, trying to reach the lost, 
trying to, to, to reach those who are vulnerable and those who do not share the same kind of economic privileges that we have. When we are focused on that, let me tell you something, we have little time to fight among ourselves. We'll be much more united. Now, maybe one question you would then ask is, I now see a little bit how these things are worked out. But you didn't just read about unity. We read in verse 23 about complete unity. Complete unity. How is that going to happen? Again, I am very glad you asked. Number three, the glory for unity. My question is, is complete unity even possible? Is that, is that possible? Because Jesus prays not only for us to work together for unity in our churches and across our churches, he wants complete unity. What does that even look like? Is it no quarrels at all? Total love, full understanding of the faith? Is this possible? Or let's think about it in, in secular terms. If you ask somebody, maybe the secretary general or one of the uh, high-ranking officials in the UN about what complete unity would look like, I'm sure they'll describe it in terms of what the unity would result in. No more wars or potential for wars, no more poverty or potential for poverty, no more discrimination or potential for discrimination. In other words, it would be a secular humanistic utopia. But before you go, if you ask them that question and they answer you, the next thing they will tell you is probably it is an ideal that cannot be achieved. I mean, total world unity, let's even get unity between Israel and Palestine first. So they'll say that is what, it's an ideal that we work for. It's not so much that we feel we'll be able to achieve it. It's not possible. But if we keep it as our focus, we'll continue to work towards it, and that makes us better. But it cannot be achieved. Now, Christianity also tells us that complete unity cannot be achieved through our working together for unity. As much as I've said, I said we should look for creative, innovative ways to, you know, um, you know, work with other Christians. But let me tell you, the issue of debate of baptism is not going to be settled until Jesus comes. I hope you believe that. It's just not going to. The issue on how the church is governed is not going to be settled until Jesus comes back. It just wouldn't. So in that regard, as we work for unity, we cannot achieve complete unity. Maybe So we and the secularists are united. united no pun intended. We and the secularists also believe the same thing. You can't work together to obtain full, complete unity. Except the difference between us is that we actually believe that it can be accomplished. We don't believe, we believe like them that we can't work together to achieve it, but we believe it will be accomplished. Why? Because it's not going to be by us. It will be accomplished once again through gospel. Through the gospel. What do I mean? If you look in verse 22, eh, Jesus says, I have given them the glory that you gave me. And then it goes to verse 23, so that they may be brought to complete Unity. There's something that will bring about complete unity. It is called glory. And Jesus says, this glory, I will give it to them. And the obvious question is, what's the glory? I mean, is it some kind of, you know, the kind of smoke that was blowing at Olamide's last conference? Conference. Concert. Okay, it shows you that I wasn't there. All right. 
I assume there will have been smoke. Is that, is that glory? Or is it, what's glory? What's the glory? Is it the bicycle, you know, when Rooney scored a bicycle kick the other time against Man City, it was absolutely glorious. The whole Old Trafford just burst into, and we say that's glorious. What's glory? And particularly, what's the glory that Jesus is giving that he says will bring us to complete unity? Fine, so that let me think, let's think of something. Why is it that the guys in the UN who probably, the ones that are not Christians, some of them are Christians, but the ones who say we cannot come to complete unity, why would they say that? They'll say something that you and I would say, but maybe we'll say it differently. But most people would say this. We can't come to full unity because, you know what, we are all human beings. We are flesh and blood. That reminds me of one song, um, Human, Human League. That was, it was, the Human League was this British um, pop band, electronic pop band in the 80s. So the guy, um, he was singing a song. He had just, his, his girlfriend had just gone away, and the nights were cold. It was very, very difficult for him. And so he cheated on her. And so when he was now confessing to her, the chorus of the song says, I'm only human. Of flesh and blood, I am made. And the girlfriend retorts back to him and says, uh, you see, you don't have to. He was telling her she shouldn't, she, shouldn't, she shouldn't cry. She should wipe her tears. She now told him, you see, these tears that I'm, tearing, I'm crying, they're not, they're not tears of pain, but they're tears to hide my inner shame. Because whilst you were human, I was also being human as well. <laughs> For people that didn't get the joke, that means she too was cheating on him at the same time. In other words, we're human of flesh and blood, we are made. So the reason why we cannot achieve complete unity is that the flesh and blood that is humans, we both have imperfections, and Christians will say imperfections in sin. It's our humanity that doesn't make us come to complete unity. And that is so anti-Christian. Because to be, taught to be truly human is not to sin. Jesus rejects this. To be truly human is to be like the one who never sinned. What do I mean by that? When God created Adam, God did not create someone in sin. To be human is to be created in the image of God and therefore to reflect our creatureliness to worship of God. That is why when the second Adam came, also the first Adam fell into sin. And everyone that has been born because of him has been born in sin. But when the second Adam came, who is Jesus Christ, he was the one who knew no sin. The giving of the Holy Spirit to resurrect us or to give us new life is not to turn us from human beings into spirits. The giving of the Holy Spirit is to make us more human. In other words, if we look in verse 24, which we didn't read, Jesus says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus is saying the only way we're going to come to complete unity is when we are glorious like Jesus, all of us just like Jesus, glorious like Jesus, and in that regard, we will then be able to come to complete unity. Let me put it this way. Paul says, those whom he has uh, predestined, those who he foreknew he predestined uh, to be conformed to the image of his son. For those he, he, he foreknew he predestined, for those he predestined he called. For those who called, he justified. But where's the last place that we're all going? 
if we truly believe in Christ, those who he justified, he did what? He glorified. This is what we call resurrection glory on account of Jesus' glorification. If you look at um, just verse, five, uh, verse 4 and verse 5 of um, 17, Jesus says this, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And when he says he has finished the work, Jesus often in John speaks proleptically. That is, he speaks about something that he will do as though he has already done it. So even when in verse 24 he says, I want them to be where I am, he was really meaning where he was, where he was going to be after a particular thing. So verse 5, he says, Father, and now Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. What does Jesus mean by being glorified? Now we've seen that over and over in the book of John. The glory of Jesus was almost a journey. In John chapter 7, verse 37 to 38 and 39, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are thirsty, come and drink of me. Because out of the belly of those who believe shall flow rivers of living water. And John then interpreted it to then say, but this he spoke about the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, when was the Holy Spirit given? Acts chapter 2. Where was Jesus at that time? What? In heaven. How did Jesus get to heaven? He ascended. Before he ascended, what was he? What happened to him? He was what? He was, he, he was, no, before he ascended, what happened? He was resurrected. Before he was resurrected, he was, he was crucified. The crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ all encompass his glory. They all encompass his glory. You see, in the gospel, we understand this. The only reason why we have the unity that we have, the already bought unity, is that Jesus takes the penalty of the sin of division. Because guess what, guys? Discord, people who bring discord into the house of God, it is a sin. It's not just expressing your imperfection, it is a sin. But we'll always continue to sin in that regard. We don't get it perfectly. If God judged us based on that, we will all be doomed. Jesus took the penalty. He was disintegrated, if you like, or or forsaken by his father. He, he, he who had been united to the father, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took the consequences of our disunity so that we could be united. But there was more. In his resurrection, in his glorification, not only did he vindicate that God had accepted our sin in his sacrifice, but he opened up the way. When Jesus died, the way to the, 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 the veil of the, of the temple was rent, saying the way to the holiest of all was now open. In his resurrection, he shows what it is to be a new human being. The human being that will dwell with him and his father in the new heavens and the new earth forever. It is only when we come into that perfect, unit, a perfect resurrected state that me and Bem can be fully united, completely united. And so as Christians, what is our motivation to work for unity? Well, we look backwards to what Jesus has achieved on the cross and see that we are united there. But we also look forward in anticipation of the complete unity that he will bring about because he has given us his glory through the gospel.
So guys, let us be careful how we speak of other Christians. We can disagree. Disagreement will always be there. It may be doctrinal. It may be that you don't like people's worship styles. It may be that they're too rambunctious, but still, be careful how you speak of those who Christ died for because you are united with them in the vine that is Christ. And also let us be driven for the mission of Christ to preserve and to depict our unity as we await the coming glory of complete unity in him in the new heavens and the new earth. Let us pray. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also, in us, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. We ask all this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.